0: Well, good morning. My name is Michael Calhoun and I'm a youth pastor here at New Life Church and privileged to be able to open and share God's word together. We've been journeying through the book of 1 Peter and we've been in this since October and this morning we'll conclude our study in this wonderful book. But before we turn here, let's just consider for a moment a letter. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians in exile, persevering through suffering people against them, against their faith, and they're wondering, how are we going to make it? How are we going to have the joy that we know that is ours in the midst of this difficult, difficult time? And so as we think of a letter, think of ones that you've received. Think of the meaningful times when people have written to you, and I don't know about you, but I saved them. I filed them away, and I look back later, and I'm able to reference them and be reminded about what they said. Also, when you write a letter, you're able to think about what you would like to say. And so Peter here has had opportunity to think again and again, what am I going to send to these Christians that would encourage them in their faith, that would remind them about who they are, that would remind them of what God has done and how they're able to persevere in the midst of this suffering. And we don't typically experience the same intensity of suffering for our faith, but even still, we forget our true identity as Christians. We sometimes get distracted by the world around us. We sometimes become discouraged in our faith. And oftentimes, I think this is due to the normal hardships of life. And they don't even equate. I think we look at First Peter and think, oh yeah, I suffer. Life is hard. It's typically because we work hard, finances are tight, illness happens, a vehicle breaks down. There's messiness in a relationship, but how often are we actually persecuted for our faith? And I would say that by and large, in, in our context today, we don't experience persecution and suffering for our faith that often. This is changing, though. As we look at Christianity as a whole, as we think about politics, as we think about the changing scene, even here in America, things are changing, and Christians are becoming more and more marginalized And so we can be prepared for this, and we can be reminded of the same truths here from Peter, of what God has done, and how we can be strengthened in our faith. Because the reality is, what God says in his word is who we really are. It's an identity issue. And this then shapes us, it shapes how we'll see him, ourselves, and the world in which we now live. And so please go ahead and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter 5, 12 through 14. Uh, here's where we'll finish. I forgot to put that up there. That was just the beginning of the letter. So if you're tracking, you can look back there. I'm going to move on in just a sec here, though. But we're going to keep in view all the blessings that this letter has in store and that they all come from God, that we live as ex- exiles even today and the world might be against us. But through these difficult times and our complete dependence on God, we can glorify him. And so with this, we read these last three verses now, 1 Peter 5, 12 to 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you Greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So we could focus on these verses specifically, and I could have possibly bored you with who Sylvanus is, and we read here that he is a faithful brother, and who else greets those in exile, and where they are and what they're up to. But we've read this letter. We know the whole of what's here. And maybe you're kind of curious about this greet one another with a kiss of love. So I will pause here for a sec. Uh, that way, if you're confused or you're curious or you think maybe that's the greatest thing ever or the worst thing ever, uh, that we can kind of put that to rest. So as Peter writes here, uh, he has deep love for these other believers who are in exile. He even speaks of this. We're going to look at a few verses here. 2.17 says to love the brotherhood in 3:8 to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And then in four, eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. And so this greeting one another with a kiss of love was to show genuine love and care for each other. It was probably something common in this culture, and it doesn't need to make us feel weird or awkward um, in our culture today. Uh, We don't have to follow and live this. Uh, Maybe today it's a a smile or a warm handshake or an arm around a shoulder, a, a greeting to somebody that would let them know that you deeply love and care for them. And so these final verses primarily serve as a salutation and an overall reminder about why Peter has written when he says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. And so this morning, uh, this is where we'll focus as we consider why this letter was written and how we still have it today to reference as an encouragement in our faith in the midst of whatever we might face. And we see that God's grace and peace are evident throughout. We sang about that this morning. We've heard about it from his word And his grace and peace are evident as we live as God's elect exiles, wherever that may be, in whatever situation that might be in. And so as Peter tells us about this being the true grace of God, that we stand firm in it, we see through this letter that God's grace brings him glory, causes me to see and live in the world differently, and his grace in me has been a testimony to unbelievers. When I looked through First Peter, I printed it off and I began to highlight and make notes and, and find common words and themes, repeated words and themes. And I was surprised. Um, I've listened, as well as most of you have, and heard over and over through the weeks about First Peter. And until I began to highlight and make those connections, I thought a lot of it was about me and my suffering and how God's going to help me get through and how I can just work a little bit harder and be a better Christian and be a better witness for him. And I was so, so wrong. (laughs) I realized how much of it is about his grace and his goodness. And that, yes, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of the difficulties in my life, it all points to him that it's not about what I do. It's not about how hard I strive. It's not about how I persevere, how I come through, but it's about how he does that on our behalf. And so as I highlighted, I became incredibly thankful and saw that God's grace brings him glory. It's all about what God has done and how he receives the glory. His saving grace through the blood of Jesus points to him. Our salvation brings him glory. He is the one who exalts us in the midst of suffering, and this too brings him glory. I couldn't say it any better than we have here in the book of First Peter. And so I'm going to encourage you to simply listen or follow along on the screen um, or in your Bible if you would like to. But we're going to be reminded of what God has done through his grace so that he receives the glory. First Peter 1, 3 says that he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This great plan of salvation is only possible by his grace. It's all something that he has done, that he has planned, and he has caused it to happen. He has caused us to be born again. Thus he alone receives the glory. First Peter 1.21 says that through him we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. First Peter 4, 1 through 2 lets us know that we have a new way to live because of Christ and again points to him. We read, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We can live for him and his glory alone. In 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11, we see that God is glorified as we live with others through the grace that he has given. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And when it comes to our suffering, which in itself is a privilege as we share in this with Christ, God is glorified. 1 Peter 4.13 says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And lastly, in 1 Peter 5, 10, and 11, we see that God's grace will bring him glory for all time. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to go back to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Uh, This is also in the same mindset of, of what God has done and how he receives the glory But it builds the bridge in how we see and live in the world differently because of the new identity that God has given us, and that it's ultimately for his glory and also for our good. And so 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. I think that's an old translation I knew. (laughs) But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so this then points to how God's grace causes me to see and live in the world differently. It's not because of all that I do. It's not because of how good I am or how hard I try, but through his grace, we see and we live in the world differently. Recognizing that we are a people for his own possession, that we are a royal priesthood, yet still, when we think of the number of days that we're here in this world, they're incredibly short in light of eternity. And so another way to think of this, or to say it could be, that we are just passing through. 1 Peter two eleven, first first part says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Common throughout Peter's letter, he addresses them as who they are. And so let's consider for a moment what it looks like to live as sojourners and exiles, and then we'll turn to what Peter is urging us to do. So we've already established that this world is not our home, that in light of eternity, our days are short, But we must ask ourselves then whether or not we even live as exiles or sojourners or maybe strangers or foreigners, temporary residents, or however else we could define this, describe it. And so do we see ourselves as such? And when others observe our lives, is this obvious? Or do we just look the same? Are we really any different from the rest of the unbelieving world? It can be easy to have our eyes fixed on the here and now, uh, to place our priorities before what we see us today. And in the context of facing difficult times in this world, God's word tells us that our struggle is about this. Uh, go ahead and, and listen to 2 Corinthians 4:17 and 18. We read, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We can lose sight of eternity if we don't remember the world is not our permanent residence. I don't know if you've observed before uh, somebody, maybe when you're driving along and, and they're kind of going slow or stopping or starting or Pull over and they have to look at directions and it's obvious that they're not familiar with the area. Uh, maybe they're a little lost or confused. Uh, or when somebody moves uh, to the area after living in a different part of the country or maybe even a different part of the world, uh, they don't always know the way things work. Uh, they don't know how to say certain names of cities, uh, especially if you're from Washington like me. There's some odd ones. Uh, but it, it's obvious that they're foreigners, that they're strangers and that this residence doesn't feel like their home yet. And in a similar way, when we turn from our sin, the ways of the world that are contrary to God, uh, the ways that we used to live, uh, that can become more and more foreign to us as we realize that our true home is awaiting for us. And again, that his glory is here and now as well. It's not just the future hope of waiting, but it's also for here and now, and it begins to change how we see the world around us, and we realize that it's just for a time. And thus we can live differently by his grace. And we now live as sojourners and exiles in the world, but in addition to this, sin no longer has mastery over us. However, this doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. As Peter urges us to take note of this, about how we live in this letter, and thus we recognize that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle and as sojourners and exiles in the world uh, we're urged to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul this isn't a salvation issue but one of sanctification in becoming more like Christ the eternal destiny of our soul doesn't change if we sin but our relationship with god is hindered, Our fellowship with each other begins to suffer and our witness to an unbelieving world becomes ineffective. A righteous person is one of Satan's biggest concerns. He wants to continue to suppress the truth as the great deceiver. And he loves it when believers continue in their sinful ways as their weak instruments in the advancement of God's kingdom. And so when we're tempted... We can say yes to sin or we can say yes to God, knowing that He will deliver us yet again from our sin by His grace. And we can praise God in this. Galatians 5 tells us about the fruit of the Spirit, what our life will look like when we are changed, when we're walking in step with the Spirit. And we see as we continue in His grace that we've been given the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not on our own. It's not by our own good deeds. And the Spirit helps us to not sin when we live by the Spirit. Galatians five sixteen says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In the midst of our battle against sin, we also recognize that the world is not our enemy. Those who sin are not the enemy. It's only by turning toward God that we can have victory. And this then, uh, seeing the transformation that has taken place, uh, shows that God's grace in me is then a testimony to unbelievers. We have the wonderful privilege of modeling our lives after Jesus as we fulfill our God-given mission to go and make disciples. We're not simply on a campaign of good behavior and to do everything we can to avoid being part of the world for fear that we might be corrupted by those who do not believe That every aspect of our lives can be purposeful and make much of Jesus. We read in 1 Peter 2.12, there we go, uh, that we we can live godly lives amongst unbelievers. And 1 Peter 2.12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So let's be clear, this doesn't have anything to do with us so that they look at us and say, oh, good job. Like, I can tell you're a Christian. Good for you. It's not our goal to wear a badge of honor for having good conduct in front of unbelievers. Rather, we're to live in this way as representatives of God. We bear the name Christian as we are to be like Christ. When people look at us, do they see anything different? Do they see the transformation that's taken place as a result of God's grace shown to us through the forgiveness that Jesus offers Living godly lives is more about God's glory than anything else. It's really not about us at all. And when we look at others and they see us and Christ in us, that's where hopefully the difference is understood. So here's a practical scenario to consider. If you were to switch jobs or move out of your neighborhood, would anyone really notice? Would the testimony of your life, by the way that you worked, the way that you talked or the way in which you lived, the way that you loved your neighbor, would it have any impact for God's kingdom? Even for the person that you are around that knows nothing of God, that doesn't think anything good about Him, uh, would they be able to see by your integrity, your humility, by your love for others, that there's something different about you? And perhaps you have a good reputation amongst believers, but... Uh, do you have the same kind of reputation with unbelievers? Philippians 2:14 through 16 exhorts and encourage us in this, and it says, "Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked, crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life." So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. An unbelieving world will look on and notice when we live godly lives. They will accuse us of doing wrong. We read that in First Peter. They'll slander us. They'll speak against us as evildoers. And we could allow ourselves to get worked up and defensive about this, but that wouldn't point to Christ. Or instead, our response could be one of love and compassion. To understand that they see the difference in us, they see Christ in us, and perhaps they think that it's by our good behavior, but they haven't yet seen the transformation that's taken place because of Christ and what he's done on our behalf. And so our hope in this is that then they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus as their Savior. As we keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, this can then point others to God. First Peter two twelve, the second part says, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We've established that we're able to live godly lives because we've been changed by God's grace. And we've already talked about living in this way so as to be a witness for Christ. But do we really live such good lives among pagans that they may see our good deeds and glorify God? If so, it will be evident by the way that we speak and by the way that we live. In Matthew 5:14 through 16, Jesus says, "'You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden.'" Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So for this to happen, we've got to interact with nonbelievers. We need to befriend them, love them serve them, and be willing to share about God's saving grace when the opportunity arises. We may be rejected, we might be misunderstood, but this is far better than a missed opportunity where somebody's life could be changed for all of eternity. We never know what it is that we may say or do that points someone to Jesus. Because of the way that we live, they may be added to those who would glorify God on the day he returns. And so, what now? As we think about the whole of 1 Peter, as we think about the common themes, as we think about all that God has done, as we think about our response to him, recognizing the change that he's made in our life, and how that can make a change in the lives of an unbelieving world, if we've received the true grace of God, Will we stand firm in it? Or are we easily shaken? Hardship comes. Somebody speaks against us. Following after God is difficult. It requires sacrifice on our part and we're not willing to give. And so do we cave? We say, no, I'm not firm. I can't stand firm in my faith. It's too much. It's too hard. Or instead, do we turn to God again and recognize that his grace is there, that he is sufficient, that he is all that we need? And when we do this, God is glorified and will see and live in the world differently as we, like Peter, declare the true grace of God. Those who are in Christ will be able to find peace, his peace, even in the midst of suffering. I think we look in all sorts of places in this world for peace. And most of the time, I'd say that we're looking for comfort, meaning, our own happiness, our own fulfillment. And we forget that true peace comes from God. That in the midst of any circumstance, we can have peace because we know that he is there. And so the biggest questions as we conclude are these. What are we going to do with the truth of God's word today? How will I respond? How will we respond as his church? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I share a final word from the book of Hebrews. And then we'll sing in response together. And I would encourage you in this time to let God speak to you. Hear from him. Ask what it is that he is wanting you to be reminded of that he's wanting you to grasp fully as you believe in his true grace and then how he would change you so that it might make a difference in the world. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the goodness of your grace. And that even when we don't deserve it, you gave of yourself freely. I pray that this morning we would be encouraged by that and that we would respond in such a way that you receive all the glory. I pray that we would recognize the transformation that's taken place in us, that we would be grateful for it and that we would praise you. And I pray that in the midst of any suffering, as we have opportunity among some believers, that they would see you in us, that they would see how good you are, and that you would be glorified through all that we do and say in your name. Amen.